Everything in life is story. Story is how we share ideas, politics, vision, fantasies, experiences, even our hopes and dreams. The Gibson Gazette is a podcast show devoted to story, those we consume, those we tell ourselves, and those told to us. Want to say good evening to uh, all of our listeners and welcome in my co-hosts and compatriots in story, LMG and AMC. Welcome, guys. Yay, Hello. so you, you did it. You got through it in your first chime and your first take. Pat yourself on the back. That was the first time <laughs> doing the intro, folks. As she was right. nervous, but she got it through it. Come yes. through, Adrian. Pat <laughs> myself on the back a little bit there. That's right. That's right. There you go. There you go. There you go. I'm your boy, L. Michael Gibson, also known as LMG. What you got over there, Miss AMC? Hey, my peoples. Your girl, Anne Marie here. AMC in the place to be. What's going on? What's going on? How are my fine people doing today? Good. Her name is also Anne Marie Collymore. She's trying to be funny, but you know, oh, she, she, you know, she, I mean, she really, really need to cover this acronym name. situation. Really? <laughs> <laughs> people might want to look up your byline. Might actually want to read your stuff, Madam Journalist. You know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, how are folks <laughs> feeling this this glorious evening? I hope everybody out there is, is feeling good too. How you doing, ALT? Yeah, Adrian. Adrian Trailer here, ALT, and um, I am actually doing better now that I am on with you two. Um, it's been kind of a, an emotional day, but um, I am ready to jump into conversation with the two of you. So I'm good. All right. Awesome. All right, folks, what are the stories that have been capturing your attention in more recent weeks? We've had a couple of weeks since we last chatted and uh, about Black folks and the X-Men. For folks who have not uh, checked out our last episode, you should go ahead and do that. Or check out this whole glorious season of Gen X nostalgia. Was well, Gen Xers are talking about the things that help shape us, the stories that helped inform us, and that we loved. Uh, this whole season has been fun, fun, fun. Adrian's got our topic for the night, but before we switch to that, I want to make sure that if people have some stories, you know, the day after Chris Rock was debuted his live special and broke the internet yet again with foolishness and mayhem. Uh, did you watch it? I, I did today. I wasn't going to last night. I was too caught up in Next in Fashion and mm. staring into Nigel Xavier's gorgeous brown pools <laughs> to pay. You know, I was like, I'm, I'm at the finale now. I'm, I'm not about to turn it off and switch over to <laughs> Chris. Yeah, my priority was the gorgeous. And I don't even like his particular look like that particular pretty boy slim twinky mm. thing is normally not my my thing but his face is just from god he's beautiful beautiful man and then of course and then he has nerve to be like ridiculously talented mm. and very chill like he's that laid back chill dude that you're like are you high 
No, I'm not. I'm just chilling. <laughs> like he's got that kind of spirit. Yeah. Like even when the midst of where the clock is running down, they like designers, you have 30 seconds. And they're like sewing and pinning and stuff. And he like, yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. You know, I have a, you know, the, even when he says he's, and he like got a little bit of heartbeat happening inside of me in my chest. But oh I think we're going to be okay. You know, I'm like, yes, that's the kind of calm, beautiful energy I need in my life all the time. Okay. And his father is not actually, you know, half bad either. His daddy showed up for the finale. And I was like, oh, hey, daddy. Okay, I see it. <laughs> I mean, he ain't as beautiful as... I mean, he, when I, they showed pictures of Pops back in the day and when he was in the military. And he was definitely uh, a tall glass of iced tea. Mm. But, um, but yeah, his son lives, it has, definitely takes off to the mom. Or the mom is, I think, either white or Puerto Rican. It's hard to tell. <laughs> she might be both. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but daddy's black. Daddy's a black man. Mm. So it was good. I, 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 so my thing that I got caught up in was next in fashion. I didn't think I would like it as much. Uh, last season, there was a big ordeal with, um, oh God, I can't think of the black designer who came on as a guest and he called them out on some racism shit that they was doing and i was like oh shit <laughs> like, things got real and like tan started crying like it was it was uh -oh. last season it it, it it had gone to a place that and they showed it they you know they didn't shy away from it mm -hmm. um and i was like wow the guest judge was like i see y'all how y'all doing black folks but um this season there was a lot of black folks and um I, you know, spoiler right now for anybody who has not seen the I show, say, you know, cover your ears, a black person won. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. You can take, you can uncover your ear now from the spoiler. So um, I, unfortunately, because I went and looked up um, Nigel and like episode six, I was like, how old is this boy that I'm listening after that I'm probably going to prison for? And, <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what? 10 years old? Uh, he, like, he's, he's in his 20s. Um, Close enough. But, okay. but, um, but, uh, but that was how I found out the winner of the show, like, six, uh, like still six episodes to go. And I was like, oh, fuck, I didn't know who oh, won. Shit. You know, because they had already posted articles about it. I was like, the show just came out on Friday. Y'all can't wait a week before y'all post articles about who won the show. Seriously. But um, but yeah, no, it was it was fun. So that was my story that I got caught up in. Okay. I mean, we can talk a little bit about Chris, but I do not want us to get mired. What 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 were other folks' stories <laughs> and thoughts that were current? Episode. You didn't watch it, really? Yeah, no, I, I haven't been a Chris Rock fan for a while. Mm -hmm. um, to be told, um, I used to love his his old shit, but um, yeah, I just haven't been on his on his vibe. And I, I mean, for me personally, I'm like, yo, you know, dude, this is his first platform to get out what he had to get out. So you gotta allow him, man. Just let him, just let him do his thing, man. He got bitch slapped, and everybody's gonna remember that for time. He hasn't forgotten it yet because he hasn't been able to speak about it yet. So this was his platform to do so. 
but from what I've read, I read that it wasn't funny and like his whole like stick just wasn't sticking until I guess when it got to the end, and that depends on you know how you want to take that where but you sit jokes, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, from what I I read and from Twitter, everybody was kind of raking him over the coals and saying like you know that's it, his comedy just doesn't do what it used to do. So I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. What you got for me, Adrian? Well, I didn't watch it either. Um, not a not a fan. <laughs> um, partially, well, there there's a lot of reasons why I'm not a fan. But um, if nothing else, his voice grates my spirit. Um, so- <laughs> wow, <laughs> you're here, folks. Great spirit, y'all. Everybody can not be ears, to, but I just- her spirit. Mm-mm. It's a soul deep version. (laughs) It is. It really is. And always has been. That's, that's part of it too. I'm a, I'm a big, um, I'm a big voice person. Um, and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. certain voices work for me and resonate with me and others do not. Um, it's sort of like the way you have aversions to certain textures or certain tastes. And (laughs) I just have an aversion to his voice. (laughs) And, um, you know, I, I've had difficulty with his comedy for a long time. Um, the whole way from way back, this whole demarcation between we know what we're talking about here between uh, niggers and black folks. I, I've mm-hmm. had a problem with him from from that point on. I had a huge problem with good hair. <laughs> um, oh, and yeah. um you know, I feel like a lot of his comedy is very much about punching down. Um, it's very much about um, as as subversive as he can be. There's a lot of respectability politics there. Um, I feel, and it, even from what I've read in this special, talking about uh, not fighting in front of in front of white people. Um, but then spending a whole special, essentially doing that, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, we know a significant portion of the audience who that is. Um, That was white. It was white. (laughs) But it was plenty of white folks. Yeah. Plenty of white folks in that audience. um, You know, and I know that, uh, you know, from what I've read and heard, a lot of the comedy was very dated, um, a lot of people just felt it wasn't funny. And I mean, given the fact that, I mean, comedy is obviously subjective, you know, some people are going to find things hilarious that other people don't. But um, I think that's one of the chief criticisms, like AMC said, that I've been seeing is that it it just, it, it has, his comedy has not traveled well into 2023 and it just wasn't funny. Um, and however mm-hmm. he wants to work out his justifiable uh anger about the slap you know he can do that but it needs to be to me it needs to be targeted towards the person who slapped you not the person Mm -hmm. who sat next to the person who slapped you 
and uh, that's just that's just me um and so you know that's kind of where i am with that i mean i think he probably accomplished what he wanted to accomplish with that um and i'm sure that not only did it break the internet but i'm sure it's gonna break you know um you know break streaming numbers and you know and provide the excuse me the success that they were looking for uh from it but um you know, I don't know. I I did re- <laughs> I read a comment. You know, LMG. It may have been on your thread. I'm not sure because I don't. Really yeah, we're exactly we're up to hundreds of comments yes. now <laughs> on my thread. Yeah, yeah. Um, where yeah. somebody said something about at this stage in his career, he should be doing family films and not trying to do stand up. <laughs> yes. Yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> I think from Demetria Lucas. I think she might have been on that one of the comments oh, on that. Yeah, and, I think so. You know, and I I will give him credit for the ways in which I think he's tried to stretch. Um, I think he's tried to grow as an actor. Um, I know that, for example, uh, the season of Fargo that he was on, he got some, you know, he got some critical praise for that. I wasn't that impressed. Um, I I really don't think he has a lot of range um, as an actor. But, um, you know, like I said, I'll give him, I'll give him respect for trying, for, you know, pushing himself, trying to choose some, some interesting things like Spiral, you know, going in the, in the horror genre, uh, as part of the Saw series and, and, you know, trying to do things like that, especially, yeah, because maybe. That's the um, last thing I saw that he did, actually. Yeah, you're right. I forgot. You know, maybe, maybe stand up is not going to be the thing to sustain him. And so, yeah, stretch yourself, try to do other stuff. That's fine. Um, but I just, I, you know, it's just not my, it's just not my cup of Kool-Aid. So I, I think so. I'm the only one who saw it. And the only reason I, I, it got to be, you know, yesterday I just wasn't in the space for it. I, I, I literally watched some Norwegian, um, murder mystery thing <laughs> after next in fashion went off just because i just was like no i don't i don't have the headspace for it mm-hmm. i actually am you know different from you two i was a big fan of chris rock's comedy in the 90s i love the chris rock show on hbo when it was on um but i think one of the things that has happened um you know and kind of to give contextual background i grew up christian I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up with strong respectability politics as part of my upbringing and would not really abandon the respectability aspects of my upbringing until the Obama years. Um, And and some of that was directly correlated to the fact that we'll never get, I mean, like the Obamas are the best of us. And if the Obamas aren't good enough, no one will ever be good enough. (laughs) Like... You know, and that really was the thing. It was like, well, you she's a lawyer. They both have Ivy degrees. Their kids are the most well-mannered, respectful kids you're going to get. And y'all are burning them in effigy and making fun of suits and arms and hemlines. So, yeah, that's, you know, there is nothing Black people can do that will ever be enough for a certain ilk of white folk. Um, or for this country, you know, I mean, so, and I think that my, my politics as progressive as I thought I was in the nineties at the time, um, and and as progressive as Chris probably thought he was at the time, um, that respectability, those respectability jokes 
just have not aged well. You know, one of the people posted in my thread a clip from the Chris Rock show about how not to get beat up by the police. That at the time, I remember me and many other Black folks laughing at it, especially the part where don't be in a fight with your woman when the police are stopping you because she was like, he got weed, he got weed. And she was like, beat his ass, beat his ass. And and this shit was funny at the time. And it doesn't funny now. It's not funny 23, 25 years later after we've seen police beat people for nothing, for walking around a Walmart, for jogging, for standing still, (laughs) for for checking out real estate, for for breathing, (laughs) right? Like, Like you know, 23 to 25 years later, those jokes don't land. And I think what we keep having to happen with these OG comics is the culture has grown and evolved and moved on and learned some of the culture. And the parts of the culture that have not or will not and is resistant to evolving, learning, growing, um, will still find, you know, the Dave Chappelle jokes on trans folks funny. We'll still find a Chris Rock, you know, like Chris Rock literally made jokes about how dark skin a celebrity was and made a joke that would have been perfectly at home in 1950 with a white comic where he just like jumped back and was like, oh, you have to wear a bell so I know that you're there. Like, I mean, <laughs> like in, still doing that? in really? 2023, we're making oh. jokes about black folks being so dark that they're invisible. Um, Yeah, I mean, like, that was funny in the 1950s, maybe to a certain audience. And, you know, and like certain things just don't age well. And he also didn't seem, as somebody who's, you know, bought and, and enjoyed his comedy in the past, he didn't seem at ease in his skin. His his energy was a little frantic, you know, almost like somebody who just took a bump <laughs> before they got on stage. <laughs> you know, and I'm not accusing that of Chris. I mean, I, I understand he's neurodivergent and that he, you know, uh, has anxiety issues. So some of that seemed to be playing out on stage. And it took about maybe the first hour, maybe the first 30 minutes or so before he could, he got comfortable. Mm -hmm. And then when he got to the Jada stuff, Jada and Will stuff, which is really more Jada than Will, um, he got back to that kind of weird energy again. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't funny. Like, that was the thing that, I mean, the first 10 minutes of the show was all anti-wokeness, kind of conservative Republican talking points. Mm -hmm. And I was like... I this could have been a Tim Allen show, <laughs> like it was. Mm-hmm. It was weird. It was weird to see, and then you know some people was like, "Oh, he's always been this conservative. He's always been this Republican. He's always been this," and you know, in, invested in respectability. And I think for those of us who might have been where he was a while ago, you know, we could see now, you know, what maybe other people had already seen in the nineties, like, and because they they had progressed earlier than some of us had, like myself. Um, yeah, and it was weird. It was weird. It was it was kind of like watching a boxer try to do that one last fight and mm-hmm. his body's too old for it. Mm-hmm. And, and you're just kind of cringing through and, and wincing through the whole thing. 
hoping get hurry up and end so you can see you would saw it and be over it. It's funny and, because uh, the, yeah, go ahead. The, sorry the the cl- when you were talking about his energy, the clips that I saw actually speak to that. And you're so right. I well, not the bump part, but just <laughs> his... allegedly, 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 allegedly. But his his energy when I was watching it, he just he looked like he was very tense and riled up like he was ready for a fight that's mm-hmm. what he looked like for me like he was just he was ready to go and and it, it didn't look like he was there on a for like a, for a comedic purposes it, it really looked like he was ready to go for the jugular to me and i was like oh okay okay and then when the the whatever if you want to call them jokes jokes were were trying to land i was like oh okay okay so it, it really wasn't it wasn't working and maybe his energy too had something to, to, to contribute to that. I think because it was yeah. just, it was very tight, like wound up, like ugh, ready to go. And like, like clench, watching somebody clench their teeth and their veins popping out from their neck. That's the kind of energy that I was feeling from him. Just watching the clips. I wasn't even watching the show. So yeah, right. if that's what you're saying was like, you know, the, the show and that's what he was giving off, then Yikes. Yeah, it was, and it was just a slight off kilter because he's always paced in his stand up. Yeah, um, and he's always kind of spoke fast, but it just was off, and in mm-hmm. in ways that were tangible, and an audience could feel it because he wasn't relaxed. They never really relaxed. Mm-hmm. You know, the laughter, even when they laughed heartily, was kind of tight. You know, it, you could feel mm-hmm. that in the energy in the space. And and one of the things about him choosing to do it live, it wasn't like he could choose to record the next show where maybe he felt a little bit more comfortable and more relaxed right. after he got it off right. the first time it was live. And so this was the capture. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I'm going to say on this, and this is where I'm going to bring up a little bit of my soft side of Chicago street years. He like, you already got slapped for calling for keeping this wife's name in your mouth. He tried to do some revisionist history and say the reason why Will and him have issue or him and Jada have issue was because Jada called on him to boycott the Oscars during the concussion years. And he didn't. And I guess he made a joke. Like she called him out on that and he made a joke about it back then. The reality is, is that Chris Rock has been documented for having making jo- Jada Pinkett Smith jokes since 1997. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this is not new. He's been attacking her repeatedly since 1997. Some have I've speculated that there might have been some history there that she turned him down or she didn't want him. And that some of this is some fury. I don't know if any of that has any ring of truth or is this rumor but what I do know is that we do know for a fact he's been making jokes about her since 97. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, her husband said, keep my wife's name out your mouth. And so it seems to me then the person who you know you can't beat up, you said on this show, on this stage, just yesterday, he knows I can't beat him up. So then why do you then call his wife a bitch on that stage? <laughs> like, like, because in any other context but Hollywood and celebrity, he would then have every good reason to come and beat the shit out of you again. <laughs> like, right. like, and you that, know you yeah. can't fight him. Right. And you know you can't fight him. So 
you know what? You talking big because you got a big bodyguard behind you? Like, that's punkish. Like, you calling him a punk? Like, that's punkish for you to do. And why you keep going after his wife? She is not the person who did something to you. Will is the one who embarrassed you. So to call her a bitch on international stage um, after you've already been slapped for keeping her name in your mouth for with a bad joke seems to me the ultimate punk, punkish move. No, nobody has the right to dictate how somebody else responds to their trauma. But street rules say if you know you can't beat the person up, then you take the L and shut the fuck up. <laughs> right. You know, because now, if I'm Chris Rock, I'm anxious every time I'm out in public without a bodyguard. <laughs> okay. You know, because he could have asked... I mean, yes, these are men in their 50s, and they both should be sitting down somewhere, you know, having some Geritol. <laughs> but, 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 you know, like... In under other circumstances, under other circumstances or context, this could actually escalate the situation, right? right. Like yeah. you know, this rather than this be the end of it, this invites another sex, another part of it. And some people have said that he's done that purposely to invite more drama because he's financially benefited from the drama, right? Mm-hmm. right. Um, yeah. And so that part was just like, why are you calling this lady out her name again? Like, what is your damage? Some motherfuckers like to skate uphill, yo. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know if this was in the street, he would be popping you. Okay. <laughs> popping alone? Beat down for days, guy. You go hear and feel. And I've seen Chris Rock in person. He is a diminutive guy. He's not a big guy. I'm well, He's tiny. From what I understand, he says that himself in the special, talking about the comparison between the two of them, and that Will Smith is a big guy. He talks about how he played Muhammad Ali in a film, and you know, he and, does. You know, and and yeah, I mean, he's essentially him. calling him a bully without calling him a bully, right? Right. And it's like you know, he's saying mm. a bigger a bigger kid beat up on a smaller kid, um, you know, and a lot of people have no I, I i've also noticed in the commentary a lot of people have brought up his neurodivergence um you know sort of to continue to to my mind less to understand how he may uh communicate and how he may interact uh and how he may respond to a situation like this than to cast him even more so in the victim role and the thing is you know, as you said, there's documentation of, you know, him going after Jada for decades now. So, you know, none of this was brand new. Um, And particularly the joke that he made about her when they called upon him to um, boycott the Oscars, you know, the joke that he made basically, you know, insinuating that she's just a TV actress and she's when would you, who cares of what she thinks about the Oscars because she's not going to be an Oscar nominee anyway. That was, I mean, that was the underlying message of, of his joke, <laughs> you know. Oh. And <clears throat> because doesn't he say something like, I think he said something like, Jada boycotting the Oscars is like me boycotting Rihanna's panties, which. I, ugh, anyway. Oh wow! <laughs> oh wow! What? <laughs> 
you know, like wow. I was, ne- I was never going to get in there in the first place is, you know, basically. Right. Right. And, um, you know, some people may find that funny. I don't, but oh. what I, you know, but I found more, you know, what I found that, that I thought that was really a savage way of going after a black, a fellow black performer, you know, to, especially at a time when some of those lines between TV and film were starting to fall away anyway. So it wasn't even really that relevant of a joke. It would have been more relevant probably in the eighties or nineties when there was a much harder line between people doing television and people doing film. So I didn't even think it was particularly relevant at the time, but given the difficulties that we as a community have with opportunities, I thought it was particularly tasteless, um, especially in front of that audience. So that was my thing about that. However, he was assaulted on national television, international television. And he has every right to be incredibly angry and, you know, embarrassed, uh, you know, about that happening. And he has every right to talk about it and go after mm-hmm. it, you know, in the way that he needs to in terms of, of processing it. But um, I just in my opinion, like I said, not having seen the whole special and I, I you know, I own that um, and won't. <laughs> so but just since <laughs> but just since we're talking about it, you know, it seems to me like the way he chose to process that it wasn't really about jokes. Um, it was clear. It, it seems clear from, from what people have said, who've seen it and the clips that I have seen that this was about processing anger, which you can do that mm-hmm. too. That's okay. You know, but the way it, you have to then be prepared for the way in which people are going to receive that. And it seemed as if the audience was uncomfortable with it. The jokes didn't, what he, I guess, considered jokes didn't really seem to, to really resonate um, during that last period. Now, of course, I've seen people have been like, it was hilarious. I loved it. You know, the last part was, was masterful, blah, blah, blah. So once again, all of this is subjective, but um, you know, I'm just saying that whatever he may have said in the past, all, all of those years, um, about Jada, that doesn't justify Will Smith's actions. By the same token, him being neurodivergent, that has nothing to do with decades of misingenuous um, against Black women in general, going against this Black woman in particular, um, sitting by and laughing and allowing your white comedian friends to say the N-word with the hard R. And you know, many of the other objections that I have to him, which are coming to the fore in the conversations people are having about this special. So, yeah, I mean, if anything, he's, I'm not seeing an excavation of Will Smith. I'm seeing an excavation of all the negative things of Chris Rock. So, so if, if the goal was to diminish Will, that mission was not accomplished. Mm -hmm. (laughs) right if the goal was even to diminish jada every joke he told had already been uh exercised in the public sphere a year ago when this first went down every comment about jada controlling will or jada being some kind of you know the kind of massage noirish ideas that circulated so even 
rebringing that up, it was outdated by a year, right? Like, so, you know, like that, even those kinds of thoughts, thoughts and ideas had already been, you know, rung dry in the Twitterverse. So I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like even when he had strong points in the, throughout the special, um, his execution of the joke was sometimes weak or overwrought, you know, uh, in, in ways that were just like, it's, this is not, you the time is gone and and again i say that as a fan i own take five you know i own the fargo season that he's in um i do enjoy his work um where he gets to be darker more dramatic characters um i will never own pootie tang that was an abomination above uh, on god <laughs> <laughs> I will never. That is anybody who says they love it. I'm just. What do you too. mean? Oh my god! Uh, you know there are lines in the sand to be drawn. Um, uh, you know, I even tolerate. I think I love my wife, which was very fairly mediocre as a film overall. Um, yeah. You know, I I just. You know, so I'm not somebody who, in the, not in the, in the same way that it was uncomfortable for me to watch Dave Chappelle, uh, somebody who's a comedy I had enjoyed, mm-hmm. you know, repeatedly attack members of my LGBTQ plus community. It's just like, ugh, really? You two? It's exhausting. And it's exhausting because Black folks should know better. Um, you know, him going after Will, that was to be expected. But him going after Will and using a slavery joke yeah. Where you encourage masses beating of the white of a black body, it's just like, ugh, sir. Especially Again, these things might have landed twenty years ago. They are not landing in twenty twenty three, and you mm-hmm. gotta feel that in your bones as somebody who has owned the room before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. All right, so I think we gave way more time to this than we had planned. <laughs> We're thirty minutes into the show, um, but you know, it's I, I'm 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 sad and frustrated. You know, I just need my brother Cat Williams to to continue oh, to come up. You know, I look, 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 y'all leave Cat alone. That's my he's the last no, man standing. I love Cat. No, he's the last man standing. He's the last one left for me uh. of the OG comedians. Everybody else has gotten out of touch. Even some more who I love. I loved a lot of her special. But then she had to make a, she had to speak on um, uh, Wade and Gabrielle Union's daughter. Oh, and, no, and, no. And, and the Miss, recent one? The one yeah, she the just new dropped? One. Yeah. Oh, come. I wanted to watch that. It, I mean, in this, I'm not going to tell you not to watch it because it's really only three minutes out of you know, maybe three to five minutes out of an hour long special. And the special overall is good because some more is good. Um, yeah. But it's just like, can can y'all just, if y'all don't like trans people or y'all got questions, maybe let's just don't talk about it in our comedy. There is so right. many things going on in the world that you can talk about mm-hmm. in your comedy that bringing up trans people at this point is kind of like, for why? Right. You know, I don't even wokeness jokes. It's five years late now. <laughs> We've been talking, like, you know, and you're literally parroting Fox News at this yeah. point. Who are you talking to at this point? Because the only people who are using that word 
you know who they are, you know where they come from, you know what their intentions are. And given the fact that legislation right now is being enacted all across this country that is causing direct harm to the trans community, to people of color, mm-hmm. to your own community, whether you can, you know, even if you don't consider um, trans people part of your community, well, black people still are, um, <laughs> you know, so black trans people should still be part of it. But regardless of that, I mean, the government is doing enough and individuals committing acts of violence are doing enough. So why do you need to incorporate that into your joke set as well? Particularly if you're not, I don't think, the thing that was crazy about Samora's, I don't think she was trying to do harm. She, But she kept misgendering the, the girl. And and that was like, you know, she kept describing as a boy in a dress. Ugh. And... She knew and she it was doing. like, yeah, and, and but you know, but while staying, you know, it's good because these kids today they get heard from their parents when we didn't back in the day, which is a fair analysis. We we were not heard back in the day by many of our parents, um, in comparison to this generation of kids, mm-hmm. you know. But there were so many other ways you could have made that joke right. without That's, having to bring up delivery. a transgender child, right? right? Like, like you could totally make that exact same joke without ever bringing up a trans person. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like, why, why? Especially, especially we, not a child. Especially right. not a child. Right. Especially not a child. And so, I mean, so in that instance, I was disappointed in some more because, again, this is, I, I mean, so now every time I watch a black comic, because I don't really see white comics doing this. I don't watch a lot of white comedy, so I can't, you know, speak to the universe of current white comedy. Mm-hmm. But I'm mostly seeing black comics doing this, <laughs> where the conversation about trans folks is coming from black comics. Um, and I'm just like, Ugh, okay. So every time I press play, I'm like on guard, on hold. You know who was funny that I did not expect to be funny oh. um, in a recent comedy special was Earthquake. Like Earthquake's last Netflix special was hilarious from beginning to end. And he was able to do so. I mean, he danced on the fringes of some things, but was able to dance on that fringe without ever making offense. And so it was just like, okay, wow. So, you know, for folks who like, oh, I I feel so hamstrung. I can't make jokes. There are plenty of people out here who are making comedy and making jokes without punching down. And, Mm. you know, especially given some of y'all positions like Chris Rock has got to be worth a few hundred million dollars at this point. <laughs> like Dave Chappelle mm-hmm. is definitely worth a few hundred million dollars at this point, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, and they're making jokes and having commentary about, you know, like even this most recent one, you know, Chris is talking about his private school with the, with his daughter and paying for that. I mean, some of that stuff is so out of touch with the regular everyday lives of black people is like, okay. <laughs> The funny thing is that I think that all of these these quote unquote jokes um, really stem from the way the conversations that we're not having in the black community. The same mm. thing that you're talking about the LGBTQ and um, you know the trans community and and the whole nine. And we always talk about how we never want to talk about these things. So. I think that it kind of shows true colors in a certain way 
as to what their perspectives are or where they need to learn, where they need to be educated upon certain things. And as we were saying before, if you don't know what the hell you're talking about, just shut it. Don't say anything. Learn first. And if yeah. it if you're uncomfortable about it, then maybe even talk about the fact that you're uncomfortable about it. But again, delivery, it comes from your delivery. Because the same way she was talking about, um, what, what's what's her name again? Is it Zenea? No, um, Dwayne um, and Gabrielle's daughter. Uh, Zaya? Zaya. The same way she was talking about Zaya, she did. She could have done it accordingly and she could have done it properly. She chose to use those particular words. So I, I, I think um, a lot has to be said in terms of context and education and what conversations are people, what conversations people are having in the black community. That, 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 that kind of rings true for a lot of that, for me anyways. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm pivoting. Unless somebody has a story they're dying to discuss, I'm going to pivot to Adrian to get us to our topic for this evening. Okay. Um, and actually, this it, it dovetails really with what we've been talking about all along uh, in terms of story, in terms of um, identity, how we make sense of ourselves um, and how we see ourselves. Uh, so what we're talking about tonight since we're doing this Gen X nostalgia is taking a look. um, I wanted to take a look at some of the uh, films uh, that we may have seen growing up that were formative to us in terms of kind of our understanding of blackness, um, how we uh, sort of conceived of what blackness meant, uh, what blackness looked like, how we saw ourselves in that um, and what kind of uh, media we may have consumed growing up that shaped that. Um, One of the things that people have often talked about is the fact that for many, uh, because because we remain still such a segregated country, um, so many people who are not black get their conception of what blackness is from the media that they consume. And I think in some ways we do as well, even though we are black people and ostensibly grow up in black families, um, unless we're (laughs) like when you guys had the the previous, the earlier uh, episode where you were talking about black maids and butlers and things like that. And we, you talked about how there were so many sitcoms uh, in the eighties that seemed to focus on uh, black children adopted in two white families. Um, but that's not the experience for the vast majority of us. So we're blowing, we're growing up usually in black families and black communities that shapes our identity in some ways, but I think art uh, and um, the stories we read, the uh, the films we watch, the music we listen to, all of those things play a role as well. Um, and so I thought a little bit about what were some of the things that I saw growing up that really were, were uh, integral to my understanding of Blackness, at least as a young person. Um, and I've talked before about how I grew up in... Um, much of my, the vast majority of my uh, young life was in predominantly white community. And uh, I had a 
roughly, I, well, I, I can't really say a diverse group of friends. I did have uh, other black friends, but we were sort of united in the fact that we weren't, um, we weren't part of the larger um, sort of community of black kids at our school um, because, you know, everyone has told the, the, we've all heard the stories about, you know, they didn't, uh, they thought I talked white. They thought I, you know, listened to white music. I, uh, you know, didn't have the same interests that they did. And so they were mean to me. Well, it's always more complicated than that. Um, and people were not mean. It wasn't that people were mean to me. Um, it just was a matter of not necessarily being accepted in that group. And so I found a group of friends who I connected with more strongly. And the majority of those friends happened to be white. Um, but when I was even younger than that, that I, now I'm talking like middle school, high school. When I was even younger than that in elementary school, I really did live in a community where I was pretty much the only black person uh, of my age. And I watched uh, a lot of television because we weren't big movie going. We, we didn't go to the movies much. Um, I said before that I could probably count on two hands the number of films that I saw in a theater before uh, I was 18. So for me, it was television that was some of those first formative films and experiences. And a lot of it was TV shows, but the first thing that made an impression on me that I wanted to talk about, and I don't know if you two have seen it, um, but it is a television miniseries uh, from 1980. Uh, it's the Guyana tragedy, the story of Jim Jones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I saw this miniseries when it premiered. Um, so I guess I was nine, uh, when it, <laughs> when it came on, um, and, uh, I was riveted, uh, to the television, riveted to the story. The actual, um, tragedy at Jonestown had happened just two years before in 1978. And, um, so they made this, uh, television miniseries for CBS, I believe, and, um, it has an amazing cast, uh, if you you go back and look. It, of course, starred Powers Booth, uh, who is, I mean, his performance as Jim Jones is incredible. And if you see real-life footage of Jones or listen to recordings of him, which I understand Powers Booth did uh, when he was preparing for the role, he sounds uncannily like him. Um and is obviously more handsome, but <laughs> looks quite a bit like him as well. Um, and so the much of the focus um, at the time that I recall about that miniseries was on Power Bo Powers Booth's central performance. Um, there's all kinds of um, amazing character actors who are in this film, if you're somebody who's into that, because uh, Ned Beatty is in it. Um, he plays the co real life congressman Leo Ryan, uh, who goes to investigate uh, on behalf of the concerned families uh, of the members of the People's Temple, um, who goes to Guyana. Um, Veronica Cartwright plays uh, Mrs. Jim Jones, Marceline Jones. Um, and then there's people like Randy Quaid, Meg Foster, Brad Dourif, uh, Brenda Vaccaro, um, all kinds of folks. But 
the people who were important to me who were in the film were the black actors. Uh, you had James Earl Jones, who played Father Divine, who was a real life uh, religious figure that Jones consults with uh, at one point in the film. Um, and then you had two of the greatest black actresses, um, both of whom unfortunately are no longer with us, but who um, really were, were very pivotal to me um, as a person growing up as an aspiring actress, um, which I was, uh, you know, for many, many years. And, I've, and uh, you know, I've, I love theater and have done plays and uh, written about, you know, done theater reviews and all kinds of things. And part of that love of performing was rooted in my childhood and seeing these incredible performers. And so the two actresses I'm talking about are Madge Sinclair mm-hmm. and Rosalind Cash. And the interesting thing about this miniseries to me and the real life story behind the Guyana tragedy is that the People's Temple uh, was well known for being an integrated religious uh, community, purposefully so. And the film depicts a very young Jim Jones and from everything that I've read about him, this part is sincere. He sincerely believed in racial equality and he sincerely believed in social justice, at least in his early years. And he, this marked him as very different from his family, from his community. And the film depicts him basically losing his first, um, uh, position as a uh, as a minister uh, because he wants to you know preach to integrated um, denominations and so the fight to establish um, his own church that could be an integrated community that seems to have been a real and sincerely held belief on his part now, Obviously, over the years, um, for a variety of things seemed to have occurred with him. He was corrupted by power. He was um, a, he became a substance abuser. Um, he preyed upon uh, the women in the church. Well, the women and the men uh, in the church um, sexually, and um, you know, developed all of those kind of signs of megalomania. But uh, it seemed as if it started off well-intentioned anyway. But what fascinated me about the miniseries was how it dealt with the Black characters. This is a church that was integrated, yes, but it was predominantly Black. The membership of the People's Temple was predominantly Black. And the majority of people who died in Jonestown were Black. And as a young child, I was fascinated by that. And I wondered, I could understand the appeal of this message uh, and this, this vision that he built of sort of a socialist utopia where everyone is equal and there's no, you know, kind of racial boundaries, you know, between people and they work together for a, you know, for a common goal you know, it all sounded appealing and enough so that these people um, picked up their lives and moved 
to a jungle, <laughs> essentially. And um, so you have to ask questions about what were they leaving behind? What kind of life did they face as primarily as Black people in the United States that this project in Guyana seemed appealing? And Matt Sinclair and Rosalind Cash both play what I understand are composite characters uh, with parts of what they say and do based on real members of the, of the temple, but they don't play specific individual people. Um, but Rosalind Cash's character in particular is presented um, early on as a sex worker who um, is essentially rescued from the streets by Jones and becomes deeply, deeply devoted to him. And at the end, when they are being presented with the idea that they must now change these, these um, I don't know how much people know about the, know about the, the real story, but once the People's Temple, well, Jim Jones had started being investigated for uh, various um, types of malfeasance um, and, and crimes and abuse and all kinds of things. And so he convinced a portion of the members of the congregation that they were going to start this new utopian project in Guyana. And they, the temple purchased land there, and many of the members of the congregation relocated to Guyana to begin building this new community there. And uh, concerned members of those, um, many of those uh, family members of many of those people who had gone to Guyana, who had not been able to get in contact with their families, um, weren't able to uh, get into the community to visit them, um, didn't know how they were faring. People would, would go to Guyana and then they were not coming. <laughs> they were go, they would go to Jonestown and they were not coming back. So, um, family members became very concerned. Uh, they had formed a group, uh, to, because they, you know, many of them, uh, many of the people were also former members of the people's temple and were saying that it was a cult. Uh, and that people were being held under duress or that they were being coerced to stay there, they were being abused, etc. So um, many, some of the family members had gone, had, a, had communicated with a congressman, um, Leo Ryan, asking him to try to, to go to investigate uh, at Jonestown and try to get some of their family members out. And so there were some people, uh, Ryan um, chose to travel there um, with uh, some staff members and some, uh, there were some press uh, that also attended and then uh, a, some family members of people in Jonestown. And uh, Jones by this time was ill and paranoid and, um, you know, convinced that they were, um, they, they actually welcomed Ryan into the community initially. And uh, apparently he was at first impressed with what he saw. Um, but that's because what was presented to him was very different than everyday life in Jonestown, where people were subsisting on, you know, meager food. They were working from sunup to sundown, um, getting very little sleep, uh, being punished um, with beatings, 
uh, for supposed infractions, um, like falling asleep, you know, while working, things like that. Um, but of course, when the congressman came, everything was cleaned up. Um, you know, the children were singing, they suddenly had this great food, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the congressman was going to leave and he invited some members of Jonestown to accompany them back to the United States. And there were people who wanted to go. And, um, when they, they were allowed to leave Jonestown itself, but when they got to the airstrip, um, where their airplane was waiting, they were ambushed by some members of the people's temple and, um, several members of the group were shot. Leo Ryan was killed. Um, and, uh, once word of this got back to Jonestown, then this is when what everyone refers to as drinking the Kool-Aid happened. It wasn't actually Kool-Aid, but that's another story. Um, but yeah. they, you know, they, they drank a cyanide laced drink. Um, and, mm-hmm. and for many years, it was originally described as a mass suicide. More information came mm-hmm. out in the suing ensuing years to show that many of the people did not consume this drink voluntarily. There were many people who were shot um, or people who were forced to drink. So it was really not, it was, it was a massacre uh, essentially. Um, but uh, in one of the scenes in which they're setting up for um, what they, pr- what the film presents as, as a, you know, voluntary uh, act of revolutionary suicide. That's the term that Jones used. Um, They show Rosalind Cash still very devoted, uh, sort of lecturing everyone assembled there. And and I think one of the things that bothered me the most as a child, this actually resonated with me, that these were grown adult people referring to this man as dad. Every mm-hmm. everybody in the temple called him dad, and Rosalind Cash it was so giving, sick to me. Yeah, <laughs> Rosalind Cash was giving like... the speech talking about dad. You know, has has taken care of us, and dad has given us everything, and and um, you know, we uh, we uh, basically we owe this to him. And I remember even be, as a kid thinking to myself not realizing it didn't, you know, I was too young to understand the idea of a composite character. I didn't know what that meant. Um, had never even heard that term as a child, but remember thinking, how did they know? Did she, did she really say this? And did she really think this, uh, you know, about this person who honestly looked to be about the same age that she was maybe a little bit older that confused me and match Sinclair's character who has at this point she has stayed there and has been faithful, but has become very skeptical and is very concerned because her son had left the church and he came to visit at Jonestown. Her son is played by LeVar Burton. Uh, and he brings his wife with him who is played by Irene Cara. And Jones takes a liking to his wife. And he is depicted as, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he's uh, sexually predatory and has assembled a a group of um, young women around him who, um, you know, he is basically exploited uh, and sort of made his, you know, kind of his harem. Um, Mm -hmm. And and Irene Cara is drugged and essentially forced to join that group. 
And so now Madge Sinclair, even at the end, you know, she's, she's clearly upset. She doesn't think this is the right thing to do, especially to the children uh, in Jonestown. She's very concerned about that. But, you know, I, I just, as a kid, I was like, even when, I remember thinking, even when somebody presents themselves as someone who cares about Black people, who thinks that, who, who claims that we, uh, that they believe in equality, um, who claims that we are going to be, um, you know, equal members of a community, there, there's still too much about that. Now, mind you, let me say that the, you know, the roots had come out, uh, 1977. So, um, three years before, I don't know what I really thought. I, I, you know, we watched roots. I was six. I don't know how much I really understood of what I was watching at that age, but some of it certainly, you know, penetrated and, and Mm. I felt it deeply. Um, and one of the things that I remember thinking when watching the Guyana tragedy is so much of this seems like slavery because they are out there in the fields under armed guard, uh, starving, uh, working day and night for this supposed dream that, you know, the jungle is the, you know, they don't have, uh, land that really is, um, arable. Um, and so it doesn't really yield crops the way it's supposed to. Their shelter is, um, is rudimentary. Uh, they're subject obviously to the bad weather, to insects. People are ill all the time. Um, you know, and these people are outside working, uh, all day while dad is sitting in his sheltered area, you know, with people mm-hmm. bringing him drinks and fan, you know, and fanning him essentially. And mm-hmm. so I, and I just remember, you know, as a little kid thinking, how did, I mean, why was this, why did they accept this? Why did this seem better than what they had in the United States? Where was the community? Where were the other, you know, where were the other people who were going to dissuade them from doing this or point out to them the ways in which they were being exploited and oppressed just as much as they were at home, maybe more so than they were at home. And even I, I was even thinking about that as a kid. And so that to me, I was, that was something where I really started to wrestle as a very young child with the idea of what blackness meant in terms of uh, dignity, in terms of protection, uh, in terms of how you have to really be careful about who you trust. That even people who seem like they're allies or white saviors um, could, could, could be leading you to your doom, essentially. Literally. 
you know, and in the, you know, like I said, in the community that I was growing up with, growing up in, excuse me, um, you know, where, uh, you know, all of our neighbors were white, my classmates were white, my friends were white, you know, it's not, I'm not saying I started looking at everybody with suspicion necessarily, but it did change internally the way I sort of interacted with my, with that community that I was in. I felt a little bit more isolated than I had before I watched that film because I felt sort of more like we were on an island and it was it was my family that was my family that was protecting me so to speak that I couldn't really rely on those people around me that they may seem uh it 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 made me like I said it made me suspicious it it gave me kind of some some paranoia um, and maybe paranoia is not even the right word, but uh, I was less trusting after that. And um, mm. so that kind of penetrated with me that um, that that's that was my experience of that of watching that miniseries. And I here know. I was thinking he was going to talk about the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. <laughs> Roots. <laughs> I thought you might have thrown in there cornbread Earl and me, but no, you go straight Jim Jones on us. <laughs> um, yeah, I never saw that miniseries. I, 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 I'm very familiar with the Jim Jones story though, because I'm a documentary nerd. Right. So I'd seen you know a and number of documentaries. So many, because yeah. so you know we have an obsession with serial killers and yes. and, and cult leaders as an mm-hmm. in America. You know, if you want to be famous, <laughs> if you want your name to last and last, get yourself a cult. Get yourself a cult or a murder a bunch of people, and America will ensure that you will never be forgotten. That is um, true. Um, so, yeah, no, nah, I, I mean, but I think what's interesting to me is we grew up very differently, um, but be, maybe because of that difference, uh, my my the films and TV that shaped me was dramatically different um so i grew up uh and you know depending on when what marriage my mother was on she was married twice and divorced twice uh and our circumstances financially would change dramatically depending on her marital situation which you know having now looked at statistics and things like that all was borne out by my life experience (laughs) Mm um uh so you know there were periods in my life in which we were black middle class uh, and lower middle class and there were strong periods in my life in which we were just poor and working poor, you know? And so my mother never didn't work. Um, it was, she took a great deal of pride in the fact that we weren't quote unquote on welfare. Cause in the eighties, that was a very big thing. Yeah. Um, you know, to, to not be on welfare. Cause there was all of these conversations about black women and being welfare Queens. Um, so, you know, my, kind of poignant years are the Reagan 80s. Um, you know, I was born in 75. So, you know, by the time I'm aware and conscious of what's going on around me, you know, I'm like, you know, maybe 1980, 1981. Um, you know, I'm being introduced to white Fantasias. I think one of the things that's interesting about Gen X and why I wanted to spend some time exploring society, culture, politics, from a Gen X perspective, it's one is, you know, we're such a small group of people numerically in American society. Um, and our experiences are so 
different from millennials and from baby boomers um, in that television was still showing 1950s TV as reruns when we were growing up. So we're watching kind of white mythologies as we're forming our own understanding of culture and race and society um, through a 1950s conformist lens uh, based on the media projections that were happening at the time. The old movies that would come on on the weekends and late at night, the RKO stories and stuff were from the 30s and 40s. And and these two are kind of very white supremacist informed ideologies and white fantasias. Even the musicals that I grew up loving are white fantasias. Um, and I am not your Negro does a really good job of, uh, you know, unpacking that, you know, these kind of images of white, pristine, pure, fun, you know, the stakes of what they were dealing with were always so low, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, but were so important in the story, right? In, In comparison to how white people were really behaving in the real world at the exact same time in those years towards white people, I mean, towards black people, towards Asians, towards Mexicans, towards indigenous folks, um, you know, in policy. I mean, it was what the media projections were, were so different from the reality of who white people were. And me living in the South side of Chicago, surrounded by black folks, my entire childhood, you know, the escape was whiteness. (laughs) The escape was white stories, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and this is also the height of 80s miniseries and soaps of wealth and rich and famous, uh, you know, uh, kind of elevation and celebration of everything that was wealthy and opulent and excessive. And so, you know, I'm looking around my hood which is dealing with Reagan poverty program issues Mm -hmm. and violence at a level that we have not seen since, you know, one of the things that is always kind of a chuckle for me is people say, Oh, it's so violent. And I'm like, girl, y'all don't know nothing about no violence. (laughs) Seventies and eighties was violent. (laughs) The seventies and eighties was you could get robbed at any moment. You know, people was getting killed for their jackets. Shoes was being snatched off and left you in the alley Mm -hmm. dead. Like the violence in the 70s and 80s was so high um, that I learned as a child to walk staring at the ground to see shadows, to make sure shadows weren't coming up behind me and to check for the shadows of trees in front of me to make sure someone wasn't hiding behind a tree, walking to and from school or the store or, you know, like, and, and didn't question it. It was just what you did to survive. It was just second nature. Meanwhile, I'm reading Sweet Valley High and the cheerleaders. <laughs> I'm watching John Hughes films, you know, and 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 everything is just kind of so sweet and clean and bright. Contrast. I mean, so bright. Everything was so bright. The lighting was everything was bright. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even when the, if the story had a little dark tone to it, like The Breakfast Club, it's mm. still like, I mean, and The Breakfast Club is, was filmed in a in the Chicago suburb. Most of those John Hughes films are filmed in the Chicago suburbs. So right. these are folks who are just like right down the street from me, <laughs> right? And their world <laughs> looks so different, you know? And, you know, so when I think about what shaped my Blackness, I would actually say what shaped my anti-Blackness were these 
you know, Dynasty, Falcon Crest, Notch yes. Landing. I was watching yes. all of that. Oh, yeah. And so I'm like, I'm overdosing on Sidney Sheldon, Jackie Collin, Harold Robin novels. <laughs> I'm overdosing on Steve. You know, even when it's dark, it's like Stephen King. And, you know, I hadn't gotten to Anne Rice yet. But as a child, like everything around me that I want, I just wanted to escape from. I mean, around yeah. me was dangerous. Around me was scary. Around me was poor. And, but in these, these television worlds and these film worlds and these book worlds, everything was wealthy and, 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 you know, even if they were in danger of a killer trying, who was obsessed and stalking the poor white girl who was also wealthy and living it up with Tattinger champagne, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it was, it was, it was another world. And I just wanted to be there. I want to be in it. Mm-hmm. as much as possible, as often as possible, you know, and when I thought about the films, you know, cause I thought about the question when you first raised this topic. Um, I mean, the films of the day outside of Spike Lee were like, you know, break in and um, break into electric boogaloo and, <laughs> <laughs> you yep. know, or, were like action films where you know the black person might be a sidekick you know like yeah. action jackson uh, you know um they weren't places i mean especially as a queer kid as a queer boy oh, they weren't spaces where i was looking to go into um you know i would watch them i would enjoy them because you had to as a boy you know because that was what the kids at school was going to talk about the next day mm-hmm. um you know but with the exception of stories like The Color Purple, um, The Women of Brewster Place, uh, you know, Frank's Place is a TV show that was very yes. short-lived. Yeah. You know, that you didn't Definitely really... Read. Yep. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there just really wasn't a lot for me to grab hold to. I mean, even the, the sitcoms that I liked that were Black were mostly from the 70s you know the jefferson's what's happening now or what's happening Mm because it wasn't what's happening now that was the the sequel Mm -hmm. uh what's happening you know that's my mama Mm -hmm. you know so i'm i'm and those were reruns by the time i'm you know in uh, elementary middle school so um and those didn't really feel they were funny but in in good times was funny but it didn't necessarily feel like my world either. And it didn't really feel like a place I want to live or be in. Mm-hmm. Sure. It, it, <laughs> right? right? Like they were always dealing with economic issues and danger too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. You know, really until the Cosby show. Um, right. And so, I mean, and I love the Cosby show because it was closer to like the suburban white Fantasias that I had been spoon fed throughout the eighties, you know, it it would take till I was 16. And I talk about this all the time. I've said this in God knows how many interviews at this point, Uh, you know, it took the police throwing me across the hood at 16 and to shake me up and to make me realize that I couldn't out talk out articulate out read out, be smart out yuppie dress my blackness. Yeah. And so then I better, try to f- figure out and understand what this blackness is all about. And and that was began my journey with James Baldwin and Gloria Naylor and 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 trying to understand the black body I was in and not try to escape it. 
but for a long time, my media, especially the media of the, the 70s and 80s, was telling you you should be wanting to escape this body that you're in, mm-hmm. not you should be wanting to embrace the body that you're in. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, AMC, what about you? I mean, at this point, I could sit back and say nothing because half of my life was, <clears throat> excuse me, was um, stated by ALT in terms of the um, being the almost sole Black people in the school. I went to a predominantly uh, Greek and Italian school in Montreal, Quebec. So um, that in itself is a lot to wrap around one's brain. All till now, Quebec is very special, very racist. <laughs> um the premier themselves, you know, the the politics and, and everything. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I left. Um, and, and then the other half is basically everything that you just said there, because we were both, both born in 75, and your trajectory was basically the same as mine in terms of, of media and how we consumed it. Um, it was, for me, growing up, it was the classic movies that's it, I kind of hold that dear to my heart because that's something I did with my mom. So on the weekends, we'd sit down and watch, you know, Singing in the Rain and, and watch Breakfast at Tiffany's and Gone with the Wind, God forbid. And, um, you know, a whole bunch of classic movies that would end up rerunning on UHF somewhere that we'd be able to find. Um uh, we we didn't really like my parents didn't go to movies per se, but they would give myself and my brother money to have a time. And every Tuesday we had a place called the Palace uh, Movie Theater, and there was Cheapy Tuesday, so we could go to the movies. For, I can't even remember how how um, much it was, but it was cheap. <laughs> and uh, we headed over to go and watch movies, and all of these movies were all again white movies they there there were no you know solid black movies until really and truly the 90s right so i mean when all in the 80s as you said lmg these movies were all they were they were great they were fantastic and they're my favorites but again they were all um basically white audience white cast everything was you know, glorified and pretty and sparkly, and there was nothing really left for us to 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 take any kind of context out of. So black context again. So, um, I think looking back, maybe the movies that really stuck with me was anything with Diana Ross. Anything, anything, absolutely anything. Um. Like Lady Sings the Blues. I know they're like depressing as hell. Don't, don't get me wrong. No, but I mean, that was a celebrated movie in the black community. Black folks yes. love them some Lady Sings the Blues. Yes, they Very do. much Absolutely. so. I cannot tell you how many times we watched it. Lady Sings the Blues and Mahogany, oh, um, Mahogany. were a huge favorite. It's, uh, pardon? I said, oh, Mahogany. I love that movie. Uh huh. Love it. Yes, yes. And um, those were, were like on, on repeat all the time and my mom and I would definitely sit down and do our little weekend binge and, and get those in and those are the ones that stuck with me because you had Billy D, you had Diana, you had Richard Pryor so all of those names you already knew 
and were kind of, you know, you had some kind of relationship with with it in movies or whatnot. You've seen them before. You heard of them doing their stand-up. Um, but um, in Quebec, we didn't have any of these influences. All of our influences were from the U.S. and from what we watched on TV. Again, Dynasty, The Colbys, uh, Knots Landing, all of that. That was all me. Like uh, Same thing, as you said, LMG. So until, um, and of course, the Jeffersons and Flip Wilson and, and everybody else that, you know, came through good times, all of that. Yes, I did watch all of that as well. But it wasn't until the Cosby show, and especially A Different World for me, A Different World was it. That was the show that really just, I, I turned to my parents, I'm like, I need to go to a black college. Like, this is happening. Mm-hmm. We need to do yes. this. Um, so, <laughs> excuse me. That it that when you look at that, that was like in the nineties. So we were in our what twenties by then. Well, um, no, late teens. I mean, because like I said, for me, I was sixteen when I'm the police incident math. happened, and that was nineteen ninety one. All right, so there you go. So late yeah. teens going at the right. Yeah, I was so, going to say I'm a few. I'm a I'm a couple here uh, years older than than you two. So <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I just, um, that's pretty late in life to actually be, you know, exposed to any kind of, you know, blackness on the whole. You had the Spike Lee movies, and then you had a lot of, um, uh, like, higher learning and and, and um, Boys in the Hood and, you know, all of these black movies that started to have these conversations about your, our blackness and what it meant to be black. Of course, it was from an American perspective, but at the same time, there were a lot of different variables that us as Canadians can take from that and, and you know, and understand what exactly is going on in terms of black-white relations. So, um, yeah, I just, for me, I found a lot of, of my blackness when I decided to immerse myself into a lot of black authors, I know it kind of goes away from the whole movie thing, but it just uh, for me it was the Eric Jerome Dickney and the the um um waiting to exhale help me I see her Terry face. McMillan thank you Terry so Terry McMillan and all of those black writers. I, I tried to, you know, like, okay, let me read these stories. Let me see what's going on. Alice Walker and all of that. So it was a kind of like a, a amalgamation of everything that came together in order for me to actually see that. And then we had, um, we had, we still have them. Then we had black community centers in, in Montreal. And that's a huge thing because again, we didn't have anything for us by us. So when the black community centers um, came into into parlay with anybody that would join up with them. We had leadership, we had um, movie nights, we had where we focused on blackness and learning about our blackness and our Caribbean roots. So that was a huge, huge, huge um, impact in my life where I got to learn a lot more about my blackness, about my history, about um, and not Canadian, but more so Saint Lucian. And more so just the Caribbean on the whole, rather than um, being Black in Canada. It was more so about being Black and and figuring out your skin 
yourself in your skin in this context of such a, a predominantly white um, society. So, yeah, it was uh, really different, but yet, as I said, I could take pieces from both of you and put it together because that was it for me. Yeah, I think for me, one of the things that's interesting, I, I want to make sure we give a shout out to Spike Lee because those were, kind of, there were these blips, right? Like you had a blip of, you know, after the 70s black exploitation period, you know, we got 275 movies during the black exploitation period in the 70s, but the, a lot of that stuff did not make it to TV in the 80s. So that if you were, like a lot of stuff didn't have a renaissance again until the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't like you got to see a lot of that imagery, except maybe Shaft or maybe Foxy Brown and Coffee, you know. Right. Um, so even in reruns in, in the films that would be on TV, it wasn't like those were there to give us another vision of blackness. And even a lot of times the, the vision of blackness there was a little problematic, <laughs> right? Like it's <his> pimps <laughs> and, and, and gangsters and, and, and that kind of thing. You know, so, you know, you would have the outliers would be something like Charles Burnett to sleep with anger. Um, you know, so you would get a moment like that or you would get Spike Lee school days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember very keenly when she's got to have it first came out mm-hmm. and, and like how powerful was, it was like this about this black woman and her sexuality and it was in black and white. And, um, and so, but those moments were like blips and, Really, the only other place that you kind of had a pro-blackness happening was mostly in the late 80s, you know, as we got to the rise of Chuck D and Public Enemy Mm -hmm. um, and Malcolm X, the movie. And, um, you know, that kind of began the transition out of focusing on these kind of white fantasias and being able to establish, but it came through music. It came through salt and pepper. It's okay, kind of yeah. pro black expression. It came through mm-hmm. hip hop, even LL Cool J from a romantic standpoint uh, with I need love and things of that mm-hmm. nature. It wasn't coming from film and movies and, no. and, and television outside of Spike Lee. I mean, you do get do the right thing in this period. You do get Mo better blues by 1990. Um, but He was the outlier out there. He was the lone wolf. I wouldn't know until years later about Kathleen Collins. I think Kathleen Collins, you know, movies like, um, uh, God, what was the name of her her movie? Like her movies and Bill Duke's personal problems. And um, I forgot Kathleen Collins. I'm going to look up her her damn movie now. Um, But, you know, I would, it would take me going to like film classes (laughs) <laughs> to hear about these black independent film um, that, you know, were a big deal um, years later, you know, to hear about, you know, those works. Um, and a lot of them were out of print. I mean, even something like Ganja and Hess, you know, a horror movie about with black folks, that wouldn't be back in print for like, decades and i was a horror nerd like right so i'm like watching all of this every slasher film that i could possibly get my hands on in the 80s um too um and even in in those films you know we die first or you know as quickly as some very disposed (laughs) um so yeah i mean it's it was it was strange i don't know 
like even millennials who would have their formative years happen in the 1990s, which was a renaissance of black creativity in television mm-hmm. and film. So they get the UPN shows, they get the WB shows. Right. They get, mm-hmm. they get all of the black rom-coms throughout the 90s. Mm-hmm. They get the black nostalgia films like Inkwell in the Wood. You know, so they get all of that stuff as part of their formative years, which creates a different understanding of blackness in a way that we didn't have. It just wasn't available to us. Um, And it informs different understandings of blackness that I don't necessarily know that sometimes generationally across generations, we always appreciate. Yeah. Well, there is um, actually a film that we're forgetting um, that was one of the ones that I had wanted to talk about. And I don't know how, you know, I don't want to take up too much time, um, but I mentioned earlier that, you know, as I was growing up, I was an aspiring actor. I dreamed of having an acting career um, in film and TV, but primarily, for some reason for me, primarily it was on Broadway. Um, I really wanted to be, uh, I really wanted to be a stage actor. Um, You know, but I had aspirations for films and TV as well. And so a movie that for me was really, really pivotal in figuring out how to, to, think about a possible career for myself was actually Hollywood Shuffle, um, mm. which was 1987. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the whole point of that film is limited opportunities for actors of color and what compromises have to be made in order to play the few roles that are out there. And do you do that at a cost you know, what weighing that balance between a paycheck and your dignity, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, the movie, um, obviously it's dated in a lot of ways, but, um, it's still funny and it's still relevant. Um, because despite the fact that we've improved so much in representation and there's so many more black stories being told and black creatives in front of and behind the camera, um, there's still a lot of stereotypical roles out there. There's still people, um, you know, with, I mean, you know, just a few years ago, we had this very robust conversation about a movie like The Help, um, for example, Mm -hmm. where, um, you know, we're talking about how this is supposed to be a story about uh, Black domestic workers, but it's being presented through the lens of a white character, uh, it's based mm-hmm. on a book written mm-hmm. by a white woman. Um, it uses uh, a, a dialect that, you know, supposedly is a is an approximation of how some of these uh, these women actually spoke. But you know, come on. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> then, of course, is also accused of basically taking a real uh, black woman's story and um, you know repurposing and repackaging it for uh, you know. a a white person's use and financial gain. And, you know, I know that um, Viola Davis and Octavia Octavia Spencer both talked about uh, criticism that they received for playing those roles. I remember seeing an interview with them when they were on Tavis Smiley, remember him? Um, (laughs) And uh, uh, when he he still had a show uh, on television, on PBS. Mm -hmm. And... um, I and and being kind of concerned about how I felt like 
Viola engaged with that question much more thoughtfully to me than Octavia Spencer did. She wrestled with it. She talked about how she wrestled with it at the time. Um, And, you know, Octavia was basically kind of like, you know, I'm a working actor. These are, you know, I, you know, try to bring the best uh, performance and the, you know, the best of myself that I can to this, to this character. This is a woman, uh, you know, these were, you know, there were real women like the woman that, you know, that I played and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that certainly, you know, it was two different kind of ways of engaging with, with what had to be a very difficult critique to listen to. Um, but it was very much like that same conversation that was being had in Hollywood Shuffle, where Robert Townsend's character, Bobby Taylor, is playing, is asked to play this, you know, basically a black exploitation pimp character uh, in this movie. And, you know, he's, he's uncomfortable with it. His grandmother, played by the great Helen Martin, um, is particularly, uh, you know, unimpressed with this character. Um, but it's sort of like, what compromises do you make so you can you can launch your career and so you can feed your family and, and do, and, and stop working at winky dinky dog, uh, with Sean Witherspoon <laughs> as your manager, you know, and, uh, you know, and of course, at, you know, as a, as a kid in particular, cause I guess I was probably, I think I was, um, I think I was in the 10th grade when Hollywood shuffle came out. And, um, I, I originally saw it on cable actually though. So it was, I was probably a little bit older than that, but, um, it, I, of course the, the part that, that hit me the most was black acting school. And, um, because I had experiences like that in my own life as a teenager, you know, growing up and playing, you know, trying to play roles, people not knowing where to put me, um, in these predominantly white environments that I was in and, you know, I am talented and I want to be a part of this production and part of this performance and they want to use me somewhere, but how does the black girl fit into Oklahoma, for example, um, or Bye Bye Birdie or, um, you know, some of the, the, some of the shows that we did, I was always playing a teacher or, um, you know, someone in a, you know, a ba- some type of background character and, um, you know, or the one time, <laughs> and I think this is what, this is partly what resonated with me so, so much about Hollywood Shuffle is because um, there's repeated scenes throughout where the casting directors are telling the, di- not just, not just Robert Townsend's character, but other actors who are auditioning that they're not black enough or they need to be more black. And of course, black has a very specific meaning to these white casting directors. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this mix of people across um, the color spectrum, you know, who are black and, you know, they present some of them as obviously, you know, classically trained, you know, Shakespearean, whatever. Um, and they're having to, do this dumbed down dialogue, ridiculous, uh, you know, adopt these ridiculous dialects, um, you know, perform in these very stereotypical uh, scenarios. And um, 
you know, and struggling with how much of this do I accept? Why are these the only roles that are available to me? And is there a way that I can bring some of my actual self to this and that I can do this with some, some degree of self-respect or, you know, and, and what does blackness mean in the context of film? What, you know, what is it? How, what, what kind of authenticity is there to it when actual black people are being told by white people that they're not black enough, (laughs) you know, or Mm -hmm. that they're too, they're too, what the heck does that mean then? And, Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I was in high school, we did uh, a production of Little Shop of Horrors. And I cannot sing. Uh, I was able to fake it uh, through certain auditions. Um, Mm -hmm. I was in choir for years because I can blend with other people, but I can't really sing on my own. And um, so obviously in Little Shop, we have... Uh, the chorus of um, the you have uh, the three black girls singing yes, through the, throughout yeah. the whole show, right? Who, I mean, they don't they don't show up as much in the movie, but through in the actual stage production, right? In the stage, they're yeah. singing throughout the entire show. Yes, they are, and um, you know, acting as sort of a Greek chorus, a singing Greek chorus, mm-hmm. um, you mm-hmm. know, for the for the events, and of course, if we remember from the movie, two of two of those. Uh, girls were Tisha Campbell and uh, Tashina Arnold. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so, of course, we have auditions. I'm, I'm in a what was called theater major studies. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> At my high school, we had the ability to do what was called major studies, where you could do a two-hour concentration in some subject that was that you were passionate about, maybe something you wanted to pursue after high school. Um, so we had everything from teacher major studies, psychology major studies, and then you could, uh, even do things like, um, we had a, we had a working, um, auto shop at our school. So you could do the major studies for that, or you could do, we had a beauty salon, so you could do major studies for that. So it could be academic or it could be something more practical. And we had theater major studies. And so I was in that. It was audition only uh, program that you were in. And this was when I was in senior high school. So we had a separate school that was just juniors and seniors. And um, so we were doing, we were going to do Little Shop. So um, I auditioned because we were required to audition for every show. And I knew I wasn't going to get cast because like I said, I could not sing. I mean... (laughs) You know, it was one thing to, you know, kind of, kind of fake it through, you know, middle school and maybe, you know, like I said, get in that background in, in Oklahoma or, or um, you know, Bye Bye Birdie, but this was a different type of show. And, um, you know, so I did dutifully did my audition. And I remember that our um, teacher who was, you know, the director, she came to me after and she said, I thought, she said, I... I don't understand what, what happened. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, I thought you could sing. And I said, why did you think that? And she said, well, you sang in your audition for the class. Now I sang happy birthday, (laughs) y'all. And and basically jazzed, you know, jazzed it up a little bit. I acted it. 
I didn't really sing it. I acted it. Right. And so I, and I said that to her, I was like, I, you know, I needed to, you know, I did what I needed to do to get into the class, but I was never going to be a, you know, a musical theater star as much as I love musicals. I don't have the chops for that. And so she tells me how disappointed she is because she really wanted to have a black girl as one of the, um, I can't remember now what the what the three characters are what they're called, the right? Um, but she wanted to ha- she wanted an actual black person to be one of those girls because she knew th- th- knew in our school, which is was you know ninety eight percent white that the likelihood of that you know was not high, mm. and um, I remember being really really bothered by that because it was like you you're doing this show that has these important characters that are you know based on you know black female vocal groups from the 60s you know like you know basically a motown style group and you know you don't have the student demographic for that but everybody else in the show is white so it you know so it really doesn't matter that much i guess um you know, but I felt like I disappointed her because she assumed because I was black that I wouldn't be able to sing. And because I had faked my way through it, I guess, in the audition, which lots of people do. I didn't do anything deceptive. I was asked to sing a song. I sang a song. Um, you know, but she was disappointed because she wasn't going to be able to, you know, to have at least that token black presence uh, to represent this group. And sure enough, the three girls who played the roles were white (laughs) because, you know, and they did a good job as good as they were going to be able to do to, you know, even though I'm sure that everybody who saw the show knew, you know, essentially what those characters were supposed to be, but, you know, that she, she did the best she could with what she had and they were, you know, they were talented singers and, you know, whatever it was, what it was. But it just kind of, it just kind of connected to me that these people in position in in positions of power, whether they're casting directors, directors themselves, um, they have these conceptions of who black people are, what they are, what they represent, and how they can be used in certain productions and certain performances, and. It's very difficult, even I think today, despite every uh, all the diversity we're seeing, particularly on stage, even in a post-Hamilton world, I think it's still difficult for a lot of people to imagine um, Black actors playing certain types of roles. And we look, I mean, I- look at what's happening now with the backlash against... Um, Hallie Bailey, or is it Chloe Bailey? Which Bailey is it that's in The Little Mermaid? Oh, Chloe. It's, it's Haley. Uh-huh. Okay. And um, and then also, I've heard now about um, the new Peter Pan that's coming out. Um, oh, yeah. With um, Yari. Yeah, uh, playing Tinkerbell. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it would be nice if we would just tell some fresh new stories with Black characters, and, there, and more of that is happening, and I'm grateful to see. But, you know, even now people's imagination seemed, or at least some people's imagination seemed to be very limited in what types of roles they're willing to see us in. And, 
you know, sometimes it's on the audience's end. Sometimes it's on the end of, you know, the people who casting are directors. The cat, right, the casting directors and, and um, you know, or producers or, you know, whomever. But we're still caught in that dichotomy. And um, even though, you know, at the time, you know, Hollywood Shuffle makes, you know, Jerry Curl jokes and, and you know, mm-hmm. 70s pimp jokes and things like that. So it's dated in that respect. But those larger issues about typecasting and stereotyping and, um, you know, lim- being limited um, hey, where people are arguing about uh, about Idris Elba saying that he doesn't refer to himself as a black actor anymore because he feels that it it saying that has pit, uh, pigeonholed him, mm-hmm. and that it's twenty twenty three, and we're talking you know we're talking about that right now. So um, you know, f- particularly as somebody who was interested in the arts, who was interested in performing, you know, as a black person, that film hit home for me. Uh, in a lot of ways with those, you know, kind of those struggles and those questions of where will I fit in in this world? This is where I want to be. This is what I want to be a part of. But is there a place for me? I mean, I think, I mean, I've taught Hollywood Shuffle to my kids. Um, They've seen it um, from my Black Youth program. And actually, that was not even six months ago where we watched the um, elements of it. And... um, I mean, I think one of the things is different. I think where Hollywood Shuffle is a very Gen X story is that the stories that they're lampooning are 70s films. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Right? So they're lampooning slave stories, which were prolific at the time. They're the gangster story, which was prolific at the time. The cop in the, 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 the um, black people being cast as criminals, which was like every Italian director's take on black people <laughs> yeah. in the city. Um, in the 70s and 80s. So I think you get a lot of that in Hollywood Shuffle. I think I think it still has some timeliness. I do want to push back a little bit. I think since 2020, um, which is still late, uh, there, at least in the theater world, there's definitely been a major shift. Now, how long that shift lasts is a question, uh, similarly to how long that shift is going to last in Hollywood um, with being more open to that, to colorblind casting or diversity casting. I mean, I mean, I've recently seen an Oklahoma production on a national tour where a black woman played the lead role. Oh yeah. It, played, yeah. Uh, it was on Broadway you know, and too. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so we also have, you know, a black bell who's actually a full size woman, um, a black woman playing frozen. We had a black waitress. Um, so I think, you know, and theater had to fight for that. Like theater had to take out, like had to organize, had to call out in, you know, national papers, take out ads, say that they're not going to, you know, the playing the, the big black girl who sings loud to punctuate a moment for white characters is yeah. not enough anymore. Like that, that, you know, that had been the role of the black performer, you know, Billy Porter in Greece, you know, or something like that, you know, where you come, you sang gospel-y for your number, you shut down the show, and then you the show go back to the white folks. Um, and I think that that, um, that is changing. I mean, I've seen more trans actors particularly get more roles on, in theater and productions. Um, you know, that same production of Oklahoma that I saw, uh, the girl, the woman who sings... Um, I'm just a girl who can't say no. Annie Oakley she is played by, was played by a black trans woman. Ado Annie, mm-hmm. thank you, Annie. Ado Annie was played by a black trans woman. Um, so I think we're, I think theater is getting there faster Definitely. than Hollywood and, and television. 
I think some of the questions raised by Hollywood Shuffle, just like some of the questions raised by Bamboozled by Spike Lee, you know, you know almost 15 years later, um, are still resonant. Uh, but I think it's much more complicated now. I think that the, the tropes have changed. I think oh, now the trope is that you get to be the um, the person that's the in-between person that the protagonist dates before going back to their true love, the white person at the end of the story. Like I've seen that <laughs> yeah. trope a lot in, um, in more contemporary things where the person of color is the in-between date. They're not the best, they're not just the best friend anymore. You know, that that's now the gay role. The best friend is the gay role now. And the and the um person that they date in between before they go off to their real love is 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 black or mm-hmm. Latino or Asian. Um so I think that there's you know white supremacy finds new ways to evolve the thing. Um and we've seen these pendulum swings. We watched 70s black exploitation dominate for a decade and then 80s erasure, 90s black rom-com dominate to early aughts erasure. Um, So we know that these things can come and go, that they can, you know, the the thing that's going to make the difference, and I think it's making a difference right now, at least in Hollywood, is I know that there is a lot more black executives who are in green lighting and making decisions about about casting there are a lot more black production companies than there have ever been um like it or not we have the tyler perry effect of you know having his own studio and literally owning bet plus i think almost every show was a bet plus is a tyler perry show <laughs> um you know so i mean so that there are other ways to be black i mean quite frankly right now you could go and be an actor and have more choices than you would have um in the in the eighties or the nineties, um, yeah, that's definitely. I think that that's that and, and find roles even at even at you know at our middle age years. Um, I think so. I think so. That I think that is different. But yeah, Hollywood Shuffle is critically important. It established Robert Townsend as a force. It got him all the critical rays and at the time because white folks loved lambasting themselves <laughs> <laughs> with black with black anger. Um, and uh, I mean, and at the time I, I watched it, I, I enjoyed it. I appreciate it much more now as an educator than I did in when it first premiered. I mean, I watched it. I enjoyed it. I got the jokes, but I was a kid. And some of that stuff was more sophisticated than I was able to process. Gotcha. You know, That's I think the- it was in 1987 or so. Yeah, 87. Did that happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was right um, at the. It hit for me because I was right at that age, like I said, where I was, um, you know, I was a sophomore going into being a junior in high school. You know, I'm in this major studies um, course, you know, and the idea was you're in there because you're prepping for a career either on stage or backstage. Um, because you were mm-hmm. either, you know, you either wanted to be an actor or you wanted to, you know, pursue something in tech and, you know, in tech and, uh, you know, do lighting or, you know, sound design, costume, something like that. So, um, you know, I was very serious about this aspiration at the time and wanted to go, you know, dreamed of going to Juilliard and, and all of that. So this, it, it came out right at a time where, um, and like I said, me being in a 
predominantly white environment and trying to figure out people trying to me trying to figure out what kind of roles I could do what I wanted to do what people were willing to put me in which was a different story than what I wanted or was capable of doing it really resonated with me at the time and um like I said I think it's very dated and as you said the tropes have changed and the uh, levels of representation um, and opportunity have changed significantly uh, and for the better. And I hope they stay, you know, I hope that they stay that way. That's the question. Is it, is it going to stay? stay that way? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Just from housekeeping, uh, the Greek chorus roles that you were trying to name are Crystal, Ronette, and Chiffon. Right, right. right. Um, from Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, they actually don't have a name as a collective, which I was surprised of that. Yeah. They just named the three girl Greek chorus. Um, but yeah, even if you look at the cast, this thing is just Crystal Ronette and Chiffon. Um, and, and I realized the, now, sorry not to interrupt you, but I realized that yeah, obviously they did that purposely because they, I guess they decided to name them after the Crystals, the Ronettes and the Chiffons. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, and then Kathleen Collins was the name of the Black filmmaker that I couldn't figure out her um, her name and the name of her film was Losing Ground, which came out in 1982 oh, yes, and yes, has yes. experienced a renaissance in more recent years, right. but um, at the time was kind of lost. Uh, but yeah, I think that um, we've kind of all gotten out that the 70s and 80s were not a great time to, <laughs> <laughs> to form a Black identity if you were relying on television and media. No, uh, definitely not. film. Uh, that uh, the, the subsequent generations definitely had it better. Um, and I mean, and, and like I said, there were outliers like Harlem Nights and Eddie Murphy films and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, we use the word in a comedy. They were either comedy or action films. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like you say, to your point, white performers got to play the whole range of human life and emotion and experiences and got to have their stories told um, far more. Um, the fact that we can name them all of the Black mm-hmm. stories mm-hmm. <laughs> the, of the period um, speaks to that. Um, like you, I, you know, we've talked about this in previous episodes. Um, you know, I was a theater major until my sophomore year of high school, I mean, my sophomore year of college, excuse Mm -hmm. me, um, and had gone to New York and met people who are performers. But for me, the the reason I ended up changing majors wasn't from being dissuaded. I was getting cast a lot in leads, but that's one of the benefits of going to HBCU. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) um, At the time I was going to an HBCU. So, and, uh, and even before that, for community college, I, I was in a, you know was a black one, so I had a black theater uh, class teacher and director for all of the productions, and and he loved my dirty draw, so I was casting everything. So I, it was very different <laughs> for me. I mean, I also could sing, so that was that was helpful. I, you know, uh, I was I'm sure it was. Here. I was very helpful because I mean, because that was what you you know I couldn't dance for nothing. I mean, like you know I could dance whatever like street dance, but. You know the I, tap dancing and the modern and jazz stuff that they were doing. I, you know it was a struggle, um, but I could <laughs> sing and I could act. Um, but the issue for me was the poverty. Like there were people that I met in New York who were on cast albums, who had been on Broadway, who were more. Ta- I mean, objectively more talented than I was. 
objectively more technically trained than I was, who, when I met them, were unemployed and mm. waiting tables and trying to wait for their next gig and auditioning. And I grew up poor. I did not romanticize poverty. And I don't know that I had enough faith and trust in my talent to do go that route as a route to lead me out of poverty. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I just, especially when I saw what the competition looked like and what was happening in their lives at the time, mm-hmm. I was just like, you know, now I have a better understanding of, you know, some things is right time, right place. Some things is about who, you know, something is about luck and has nothing to do with talent. But at 18, 19 years old, I was like, mm, yeah, I'm not doing yeah. that. I'm about to Yo. switch this major real quick. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I, I, it was for me, it was something very similar. Very similar. Yeah, but I still love me some theater and um and I still am overly invested in what's happening in that world. Uh-huh. Uh so but in any case, we have long, long gone past our usual for this season. We're we're, we're approaching season one length. Oh, we're boy. almost at two hours. Anything close uh, to close us out, AMC? No. <laughs> not, just, no. No. Yeah. See, AMC was already sleepy when we got on this call. <laughs> yeah. Y'all got the last bit, the last bit of energy. That was it. That was it. We have wrung her dry. But we um, really covered a lot. <laughs> um, anything else for you, Adrian, as someone who uh, picked today's topic? Uh, no, I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I, like I said, the intention was to just kind of you know, look back at things that were, you know, sort of formative to us in terms of media consumption uh, to, you know, kind of what our ideas of of Blackness were for ourselves at the time. And I think, um, you know, I think it yielded a really, really interesting discussion, especially contextualized with our backgrounds and upbringing, um, you know, what was around us and how that may have influenced how we interacted with what we watched. you know, I thought that that yielded some very, uh, at least for me, some some very enriching uh, information and discussion. And I think that we should later on do a deep dive into John Hughes and how black folks watch John Hughes movies, because I think mm-hmm. that would be interesting <laughs> to get more into. Yeah, boy, did we. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh my God! I I absolutely love that racist, <laughs> those racist, you know, racist to Asians anyway. Um, you know, like I said, I was I was very invested in white fantasias. I mean, and, and, and it's definitely not invoked to say now, but I loved me some Gone with the Wind as a kid. And then I, and then I got conscious, and it ruined it for me. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's why I had lived, and I said, "God forbid," because back then I could watch it ad nauseum. Yeah, and had, then, as you get older, and you're like, "But wait, hold on, but what the?" F- uh-uh. Yes, yeah. there's a lot wrong with this. Yeah, and I and the thing yeah, is, right. if you if you grow up watching classic classic Hollywood like we all did, I think we all have that kind of what the fuck moment where we're something that we loved (laughs) when we were young and, you know, didn't really question that much. And then all of a sudden we're like, wait, like with me, I'm, you know, I've mentioned, I'll just say very quickly, because I know we need to wrap up, but I think I've mentioned to LMG before that I'm a huge Fred Astaire fan. 
Um, Who are you? And yes, yes, I love love Fred Astaire, Astaire and Rogers, and then just Astaire on his own. Just love him so much. Mm-hmm. Have books, have mm-hmm. books on him, CDs, everything. And um, you know the but, movie's coming out soon. They just cast I, it. I know. I still don't know oh, how I feel about it. For the, yeah, for the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers um, biopic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm a little. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and they, and they cast actors that I like, um, you know. Unless they changed, it's still. It, my understanding is it's Jamie Bell. Uh, that's supposed to be playing. A I can't remember. I remember. I remember just like two weeks ago the announcement of the final casting of the two. It had been um, him. I don't know if maybe they changed it, but it had been him up until that point. And then, um, uh, oh, I can't think of her name. Andy McDowell's daughter, who was in um, Fosse Verdon. What is her name? Margaret Qualley. Supposedly, she was yeah. going to be uh, oh. Ginger Rogers. So I'll have to check and see yeah. if that's changed at all because that was those were the last names that I knew. But, My thing is that's the only thing I cared about is can they dance? I mean, because right, that, that's it for me. That's I mean, the chemistry has to be right between them, but also the dancing. The I I too I have a collection of Astaire and Rogers films. I love Swing Time and. Yes. you know all of those mm-hmm. films um mm-hmm. but yeah like for me it's going to be about whether or not that dancing is cut is right yeah and, and given the be on point and because... given the fact that Astaire was an absolute genius um and replicating what he did would be a tall order for anyone um and also mm-hmm. he had, and also mm-hmm. I'm not sure how they they have to at least approximate his look because it was so distinctive it was important that he was over 40 when he made his film debut it was important that he was balding that he had the shape of face that he did that his original yeah. um film his uh screen test said that um basically said that he uh was not um I used to have the quote committed to memory, but um, it basically said that he's not that good looking, um, <laughs> you know, not that it's kind of strange looking, but he can dance a little. And, <laughs> yeah, a little. That's what it said. Um, wow. You know, Imagine. But, um, you know, it, he was well known for, you know, his head looks, looking somewhat like a upside down pear uh, or a light bulb. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you can't, get that exactly but you have to get somewhere in the ballpark you know to for it to really look like him but um the point i was gonna make was that um i you know love his film so much and so imagine my horror when i see a film in which fred astaire was actually in blackface Mm -hmm. he only he only did this he only did this once um and it was supposed to be in tribute to bill robinson um, the number was actually called Bojangles of Harlem. Um, I'm not really sure how it was a tribute to Bill Robinson, though, because Astaire, um, who actually was a fan um, and admirer of Bill Robinson in real life, but um, his dancing style was completely different. And he didn't dance like Bill Robinson in the scene. Um, the only thing that um, was the only thing that really marked it as what it supposedly was, was the blackface and this horrible blackface, this very large blackface um, kind of menstrual caricature 
that is in the center of the screen that they're you know that they dance in front of and um it uh was like i said was the only time um that he did blackface on film but it was for me it was really shocking and um no, I mean, I think that uh, that's the whole era, though, right? Like Judy Garland, who I love, has yeah. a movie where she's right. in blackface. Joan Crawford yeah, she's is more black, than one. blackface more than in one song. Yes, yeah, does. you know, I yeah. think that that's, that's the era. I mean, and, and I think part of what, you know, we talked about earlier in this episode is the fact that those images were not uh, censored for us in on the repeats on television. They just would show them as <laughs> as they were um and that was just part of your growing up the same thing with racist cartoons um that were shown mm-hmm. the, back in the day um or even something as benign as tom and jerry's and the big black woman's fat ankles and, fl- and right. feet and the flip-flops and you know like that this was part of our, our growing up it was that's what it meant to be gen x and a tv Why? or movie watcher um of the day yeah Yeah. um so we're gonna close it out but before we do we do have an announcement amc is gonna be taking the rest of this season off she has some work commitments that are are gonna take her away from the show so we will have some guests to help with us help take a this this, the short what what do we call that I don't know, but it's a lot to help us lift us out of this valley that they've thrown us into. But um, don't listen to him, though. I might pop in here and there when I can. Okay, I'm not. Yeah, she'll be back y'all. next season for sure. We've already gotten that commitment from her for sure, for sure. Um, but uh, in the meantime, we'll be looking for Adrian and I to um, to host some future ones along with some guests. Uh, featured guests come in and play with us a little bit over at Gibson Gazette. And in the meantime, this is the Gibson Gazette signing off as we wonder what are the stories you're telling the world? Better still, what are the stories you're telling yourselves? Good night. Good night, y'all. Good night.